You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to The Buzz, brought to you by the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and welcome to episode 178, where I usually say we're buzzing into episode yeah. 178, but I forgot to say the buzzing part. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I, listen, I know we talk about the time warp all the time, yeah. but for the next couple of weeks, because of travel and just the way our guests have lined up, like we're recording almost two podcasts a day. A day. I kind of feel like we're going to have like two a day, friend. That would or be two a, two two a week. week. Sorry, two yeah. a week. I don't two even know what I'm would talking be something about. Else. Two That's... two a week, and I feel like we're going to be all caught up for November, the end of November by the end of October. Like it's oh yeah, for sure. It's crazy. So I know we're we did one yesterday, mm-hmm. which was our live live broadcast from Society of Ecological Restoration mm-hmm. Com- Mid Atlantic yep. Conference, which you will hear next week. Uh, with Rebecca uh, Becca Swadek from New York City Parks, mm-hmm. and then we have we're we're recording another one Tuesday, and we're recording a buzz next week. Yep. It's just kind of yep. crazy. It's like every week we have another guest lined up, even though those only air every other. Yeah. Week. So this is your fair warning. If you're listening now, you just heard we we have an episode coming out next week, but we also have to record our buzz at the end of next week, and that's when we're announcing who won. The copies of Camille Dungy's book, Soil, uh, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden. Um, and to enter for that, you have to submit a five-star review with a little write-up so we know who's who. And then, um, and also, we we did Spotify questions in that. And yeah. we have a YouTube comment that we're including in that. We have two yeah. books to give away. Yeah. So. so we did decide we're going to – well, we never announced it on the air. We just said we would include everything. Yeah. But yeah. – did. Are we? Did we decide that one book will go to an Apple Podcast review, and one book will go to all the other, like one you know, from all I, the other ones? I think that would be an easy way to do it, yeah. but I don't know if that would be a fair way to do it. Just That's because true. there are significantly more Apple Podcast reviews oh, compared to other reviews. Yes. So that would, if you had left the Spotify review, you would be have way more of a chance. Um. But I don't know how else to make it fair. Because otherwise, we have to say, "All right, this is how many YouTube. This is how many spot. Yeah. You want to do that, and then yeah. we we have X many Spotify, X many YouTube. Yep. Here's all the. Here's all right. Here's the tricky part too. Technically, someone could leave a review everywhere and yeah. enter oh, more yeah. than once. So technically, if you hey, if you leave a YouTube comment, I if encourage you leave, that. Yeah, I think that's a smart thing. To do if you want to win this book is leave your comment on our YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel, yeah, download Spotify, start doing stuff there. So, but while at while at the conference, one of our colleagues, Amy Pia, has admitted that she listens to the podcast and wants to enter, but still has yet, after all these years, to leave an Apple review. There's a lot of people like that. Yeah, Yeah. there's people who I wrote to us two years ago. I saw just left their first reviews. Yes. So so it, now is the time. If you really want to be entered, and and Camille was so generous to sign two books for us to give away, and I know she's anxious to see who yeah. wins. And I, I, I want to set some some she ground rules here. here. Too. I, I knew they were signed, but I didn't. It says, Bloom and Thrive, 
Black Tanya yeah. Bungie. Yeah. So, so I, I was going to make something up on the. I just couldn't come up with something <laughs> on the spot. So, so I want to. I want to kill be- your lawn <laughs> down, down with the patriarchy. <laughs> no, that's not what the books no. say. They say bloom and thrive. Uh, very uh, happy awesome. message. Yes, but, very positive message. Yeah. I would like to make a stipulation. Okay. We're going to announce the two winners on episode 180. Yeah. Now, granted, which we're well, rec- and this is what my point. We're recording episode 180 next week, which means you better get in the review. Yes. In the next, if this is Friday, don't even wait till the end of the weekend. Don't yeah. risk it. Don't. Yes. We, Do we it. We could end up. Rec- we don't know when to record episode 180 yet. Yeah. Probably Thursday. Maybe Friday. No, I'm not here. Things could change. I'm not here Thursday. Not here so Thursday. Okay. It so yeah, to, it's going to be. We're recording Wednesday. Tuesday, so we're either going to do it Monday of next week. Yeah. Or Wednesday. So don't even let the weekend go. Get it in. But I want to say this because we've had this issue in the past. We're going to announce the two winners on episode 180. If we come back to record episode 182 and you have not claimed your prize, you lost out. Yeah, I think that's fair. I I don't want to let it drag on. I say we quietly pick alternatives. Like mm-hmm. when we pick the two winners, we pick two alternatives. Yeah, we'll pick a backup numbers, and we yeah. won't we won't announce it. And just if if you win and you don't claim it by the time we record episode one eighty two, you have missed your opportunity, yeah. unfortunately. So yeah, this is so this is a whole other thing, and we're already spitballing. And we're here. not going to record episode one eighty two for <laughs> oh yeah, until almost almost a month from now. Yeah, um, but thinking about reviews in. The, the sick part of my head is like how many of the well one how many of those people still listen like some of the early I, how many of those I, people still listen I'm like what if, what if any of them have died oh i you know but i had the same thought i was i was going to mention it off the air that there's got to be people that left reviews four years ago oh yeah or almost four years ago that don't listen anymore i would love to think that they still listen but maybe they just listen occasionally or they're not caught up there's people i feel bad and and it's going to be this person's going to be one of my shout outs, but they've started from the beginning. Yeah. And they're only at episode, I, I don't know the number, but it's January of 2021. Mm-hmm. So, and that they were commenting on by the time they get to this, it's already too late. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah. it, it's going to be a lot of misses. I think, I, I really feel if, if it's an early review, there's going to be a really good chance that that person doesn't respond because we've had this happen before when we had giveaways what yeah. was it the oh, yeah. yeti mug that- i think it's the yeti mug but it's like i think about that sometimes and like oh you have this it's very one-way relationship yeah. but you build a, a a relationship with with people and then uh they moved on and and we don't even know hey i have a fun what stat. Happened? i have a fun stat for you yes so yeah. In looking at the Spotify Fun and stat, stat usually doesn't go. No, together. but this is That's like a how little many, oxymoronic. How many people do you think have subscribed to our podcast on Spotify? It actually showed us. I didn't know you could see because Apple you have Apple. We don't yeah. get to see how many people have subscribed. I don't know. I know we have like seventy some reviews on Spotify. Yeah, yeah, which shocked me. Yeah, which that you can just put stars and we yeah. don't know yeah. who did what, but we know that you can review it. Um, that's why I got to do the, the answer our questions right, thing. Yeah. Um, now, Apple, we've looked it, at the Podcast Connect. 200? Oh, it's higher. 300? You want me to tell you the number? Yeah, oh yeah. 1,176. Oh, smokes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea. But yeah. the Apple, which we know is significant, like that's 
seventy percent of mm-hmm. our listens. Yeah. I don't think we can see – like you can see how many unique listeners on an episode, but you don't yeah. see how many people have subscribed to your, yeah, exactly. your podcast. Oh. Well, that's very flattering. So thank yeah. you all. Yeah, thank, yeah, you, thank you so much. Thank you Spotify listeners and <laughs> Apple listeners and Podbean listeners. listeners, wherever all, you're listening. All we thank you. So, yeah, and we just had someone that, that mentioned in the Facebook group as a um, um, not yeah, – why do I want to say unanimous? As a uh, – Anonymous, anonymous um, user that they just found our podcast on Podbean, yeah, and and loved it. So thank you for that. We can't give you a shout out because you're anonymous, but all right. We do have another piece of follow up, and then it's plants, plants, plants. I promise we're talking plants. (laughs) It's the plants are coming, (laughs) but we friend dropped it a little bit earlier. We went to the Society of Ecological Restoration meeting for the Mid Atlantic chapter yesterday. Yes. Recorded a podcast there, a live podcast. So you get to hear the clapping and the booing and all the fun stuff. Um, and that's coming out next week with Rebecca Swadek from New York City Parks. But what were your thoughts on that conference, Fran? I thought it was a wonderful conference, and 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 I'm glad we're talking about it now beforehand because we didn't really get a chance to mention it. But a lot of our former guests were in the, the audience. I was uh, shocked. I uh, started to count, and then I it was Bill Young, ran out of fingers, Marty McHugh. So. Um, I'm trying to think who else, but I was looking. Oh, um, Nate, Nate uh, Champagne, Champagne from Mount Cuba, uh, Blaine Rothhauser. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there were actually a couple others, I believe. Yeah. So I was looking through. I was like, wow, there's a lot of former guests, but there were also listeners mm-hmm. who we'd never met. Uh, Brad Madrinsky was yeah. there, and so we got to say hello to Brad. Um, and you know, it's always interesting for me because it's our colleagues. It's it's people that oh, we yeah. look up to in the industry that give us a kind word and said, hey, we really enjoyed the podcast. We've been listening, which is very cool. But it's – that room was packed with so many all-stars in the ecology field locally, and to see the work that's being done and the work that has been done that maybe kind of goes without kudos under the radar was just really intriguing to me, like the Liberty – what's going on at Liberty State Park, mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. the future reclamation and, and, and park that's going to be an open space uh, while keeping in mind that there's endangered birds there and things like that. It's just really heartwarming to see such great work and so many dedicated people uh, mm-hmm. doing such wonderful work. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, – there's they really do rapid fire on a lot of these projects where it's like a 15-minute presentation yeah. and they kind of talk about something that they did or multiple things that are, they're working on, dam removals, salt marsh remediation, all kinds of stuff. And um, it's, it's it's selfishly, it's a little cool to see, oh, we have plants there. Those it was nice to see a lot of yeah. the projects. It was yeah. our plant material, uh, you know, just – to, to kind of patterns like it wasn't publicly announced, but we knew, and it was just a good feeling mm-hmm. that yep. that we were able yep. to do that. What were your thoughts? Uh, I thought it was it's just kind of inspirational to see. It's a topic where you're looking at like the the positive lens of a really like sad, disastrous topic. Yeah, because <laughs> all this is happening because there's issues going on uh, ecologically in the world and that they aren't just doing this because they want to, they're, they're rebuilding these salt marshes or, or, uh, capping these landfills and building parks because there's an an ecological need for that. Um, they, there isn't really a feasible alternative. And our podcast next week kind of talks about that a little bit is you have New York city with all this impervious surface. And then you have to create these green spaces that can 
attract people in a sense, but also function ecologically and how challenging that is um, as they're coming off of five, six inches of rain. And and these things were really put to the test. Um, Yeah. yeah, So it's. And it was a cool setting. It's cool. Cool setting because it was Mm -hmm. in the Meadowlands at the Meadowlands Environmental Center. uh, And. it was Terry Doss, Terry another, Doss, another former, former guest, yeah, former guest yeah. and, uh, and host of the meeting yeah. at the New Jersey Sports and Exposition Authority Center there. Yeah. So at Decourt Park. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. It was nice for that setting. They had some some really cold boardwalks that go out into mm-hmm. the marsh. Uh, really, really neat setting. So yeah. if you if you're in the area, you know, driving in, it's kind of you see what you think of the Meadowlands. Yes. Uh, when you think of in the New Jersey, yeah, and then it's like oh. <laughs> There's, they had a, a, a whole day before the conference. They had a whole um, birding thing, like birdathon. I forget yeah. what birdpalooza, bird birdfest, bird bird something like that. One of the ending things like that. Yeah. But um, yeah, and I forget how many birds they said they saw. But it was they're listing off, and you're over twenty different species of birds that you're seeing. Even just when we were walking across the bridge from where they had lunch to where the the conference was, it's um. Like there's egrets that are fishing in the water. There's all kinds of things flying around. It's really really cool. It was it was very very awesome to learn more about the wildlife there, the birds there, yeah. and what they're doing. They had their uh, ecologists uh, speak just with what mm-hmm. they're doing with birds, and it, it's yeah. you know it's making it it's making a big turnaround that area. Yeah. And this is all in the shadow of the New York City skyline. Yeah. Uh, you're you're just across the Hudson River, and you're looking at Lower Manhattan. Yeah. You're kind of nestled between yeah. Manhattan and MetLife Stadium. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there, exactly. where the Giants and the Jets play. So it's an interesting area, but there's so much that it offers, and I think it has a bad connotation that mm-hmm. everyone's working really hard to kind of, yeah, yep. kind of fix. So, yeah. no, awesome, very cool. All, All right. right, yeah. So let's now get. To, I promised you plants. We're getting to plants. We kind of talked plants. We talked a little bit of plants. We didn't, well, I didn't talk about the Phragmites. That, all uh, the Phragmites that we it saw. It is just it, oh mind, mind-blowing the amount of, of Phragmites you yeah. see. Yeah. And the amount of restoration work that has occurred there and still the amount of Phragmites that remains yeah. is is mind-blowing. But I can guarantee that Phragmites australis is not the plant <laughs> I'm vibing with this week. So why don't we uh, stop teasing it and get into that talk? So, would you like to go first? Yeah, I can go first, oh, and cool. uh, and this is a plant I've done before. I've probably done it twice, and that plant is Helianthus angustifolius, which is swamp sunflower, um, because it just they take my breath away when I see them. Yeah, um, especially this time see, of the year. It's, it's we so have nice them in um, we have these like seed mix plot trials, like ten by ten sections. Yeah. They aren't as impressive in there. Like they're still cool because it's a little later blooming. There's not a yeah. lot of things blooming. Uh, now, you have some answers, yeah. goldenrods, that kind of stuff. But this is like a different kind of flower yeah. than you see right now. I guess it's, it's probably – it's got to be Asteraceae family, right? I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Botany. Well, if fly. you want, I'll, um, I'll look right Yeah, look that, that up. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about it. I'm assuming it is just because of the flower shape. But uh, swamp sunflower, uh, they have yellow rays and reddish brown to purple centers. They bloom September to November. Pinch the growth in early June for bushier, uh, bushier plants with more blooms in the fall. This plant tolerates wet areas of the yard and bog-like conditions and is suitable for rain gardens on the, or on the edges of water features. Uses a specimen plant or mast in beds. That information is from Jersey Friendly Yards. I lean towards mast in beds. I think you get a I agree. huge impact from that. Um, it glows. It's literally 
we were over at my brother's house for dinner. Uh, he has a whole bunch of them planted next to where he got married. Unfortunately, it was raining, so and they didn't weren't quite blooming yet. Um, they really just opened up this week, and it's dark out. It's seven seven thirty at night, and it, it's just they're glowing out in this field. It looks like a, a glow in the dark like thing your kids would have. Um, yeah, so it's really really cool plant. And it is Asteraceae family. I figured. Good call. Yeah. Good call. Uh, so my plant this week, I don't think we've ever done this one before. I could be wrong, but uh, American Cranberry Bush, which is Viburnum trilobum. Do you, re- do you recall if we've ever done it? I think I might have done it once because I got uh, that the high bush cranberry fruit leather from oh, uh, right. Sam Thayer's store. That's right. Which I still got to reach out to him and tell him how – how we replayed his episode and it was one of our most listened to yes so. yes it, it is our most listened to actually actually no it's our second uh the i don't want to give away because we always do our top 10 all time at the end of the year but the number one is the american chestnut by far mm-hmm. but i think it's the Dwayne estes sam at thayer is number two on that list but um so i chose this one because right now it's berries bright red berries are in, in full set right now this shrub gets 6 to 12 foot tall, can get up to 16 foot tall, but deer do love it. So it, it, it may – you may have – if you have deer, you may have some trouble getting it up to that height. You're going to want to protect it a little bit. It's native from Maine to West Virginia, west to Iowa, north to North Dakota, found naturally in moist conditions and likes partially shaded conditions like thickets, temperate woods, and rocky shores. It has a fragrant lace cap flower that blooms in the May through July area, and it does attract butterflies. It's actually the larval host for the spring azar, and the flowers are pollinated by flies, bees, beetles. The bright red berries uh, in the fall are an excellent source of winter nutrients for wildlife. The berries will actually soften and sweeten throughout the winter during the freeze-salt cycle, so they get actually better as the winter progresses. Um the berries are loved by cedar waxwings, robins, and songbirds, and they're also loved by raccoons, chipmunks, squirrels, and rabbits. Yeah, so, I think that's a great choice. Yeah. Uh, oh, the, we have some out on the nursery right now that are just so loaded, and the berries are so big and so bright. It's it's beautiful. I I have one that I planted three years ago that I finally fenced off this year, mm. and I, it got up to about two foot. <laughs> so oh, that's cool. the deer had been eating it back to a foot every year. Yeah. So I, I, I finally uh, uh, protected a little bit and it got some height. So I'm, I'm hoping that soon some of, the, some of the shrubs I planted three years ago are finally getting to the height that the deer are leaving them alone a little bit. So I'm hoping to get some fruit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, my elderberry finally flowered this year. They ate off all the winterberry flowers. Like I'm, I'm hoping that next year turns a corner for, for some of these. But two great choices. If, if yeah. you don't know them, get to know them, add them to your property. They're wonderful selections. So, um, you ready for some this or that? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So last week's episodes were mine on uh, mosquito control. Tom's on Chinese dogwood, and we have a winner. And Tom has won by the score of nine to six. So congratulations! Thank you, Thank no you everyone. It's uh not a lot of votes though compared to the last couple. It kind of yeah, had a, a flurry and then died. Down. Yeah, it died a little bit, but I'll take it. And uh, you get to choose if you would like to go first um, or I'm going to go first because I usually choose like um, articles that aren't like too crazy long. Yeah. I try and fit it all in a page, on yeah. like a Word document page. And um, and this one I found yesterday. It was published a couple weeks ago, but it 
uh, I found yesterday, and um, someone, I think it was someone from Princeton Hydro shared it on LinkedIn. Okay. And I was looking at it, I'm like, this is so cool. There's so much in here. And then I, what I do is I'll copy and paste the article, put it in the, the document that Fran and I have as a script, and um, I thought it was like nine pages of words. So I oh, this is trimmed down. This is trimmed down. Trimmed down to wow. about uh, two pages ish. Maybe it's a two more. full pages. Yeah. Like I was just looking, I was like, because I have a tendency to do that and leave all <laughs> nine pages in. And Tom's like, "What the heck? Like, yeah, what are you doing?" Yeah. Mine is like, I'd say like a page and a half. Yeah, uh, yeah, I trimmed it down. So I trimmed down the the cool parts. Um, it's from the the uh, what the heck's it called? Hold on, it's from the Lincoln something. I forgot to include that part. Lincoln, uh, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out as I'm going here <laughs> and tell you. I want to give the people the proper uh, proper credit um, of where I got it. But it was titled Nature's Toolbox, Fungi, Marshes, and Other Unsung Climate Heroes. It was by John Gorey. On, uh, it came out on September 19th of 2023, so just a couple weeks ago. I'll read a little bit, and then I'll give some of my thoughts. And uh, here we go. Climate change is no longer knocking. It kicked down the door this summer. Wildflowers destroyed. Wildfires, not wildflowers. <laughs> wildfires destroyed more than 33 million acres of forest in Canada's worst ever fire season. Vermont was flooded by a 100-year storm for the second time in 12 years, while a different deluge left five dead outside of Philadelphia. Temperatures in Phoenix crested 110 for 31 consecutive days, failing to dip below 90 at any time for more than two straight weeks. And as deadly bouts of flood, fire, and ferocious heat erupted all over the planet, we lived through the hottest days in recorded history a global record that was promptly broken the very next day and again the next. And what scientists say was likely the hottest month on Earth in uh, 120,000 years. Given the urgency of the climate crisis, every workable solution to limit further warming and to transition our economies off of fossil fuels deserves exploration. I'm really struggling today, Fran. Uh, This dire situation demands technological advances, of course. Indeed, technology has alleviated so much human suffering. It's tempting to heave all of our hopes squarely upon its back, like desperate sports fans expectantly looking to their team's star player to pull off just one more spectacular play as the clock runs out. But we can't overlook the importance of allowing and encouraging nature to heal its own ecosystems as part of our climate strategy, and nature's toolbox can be uh, surprisingly effective. Trees are often touted for their small miracles they provide, especially in urban areas as they cool streets, clean air, and reduce stormwater runoff while pulling carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But how many people know that microscopic forest fungi process twice as much carbon as the United States uh, emits each year? Or that a small marsh can sequester 10 times as much carbon per acre as a forest? Or that restoring even a small fraction of bison populations across parts of the American prairie could help those grasslands absorb more carbon than all of Great Britain emits in a year? Honestly, that's basically the article. (laughs) The answers to those questions. Um, I'll read some more and then, uh, like I said, give my thoughts. So, starting off with marsh magic, hundreds of millions of people around the world live near salt marsh or similar coastal ecosystems of mangroves or seagrass. But many people don't realize that these unassuming tidal wetlands are also busy trapping carbon at an astonishing rate, 10 to 40 times faster than the forest. There are two reasons salt marshes, mangroves, and seagrass beds are such powerful carbon sinks. One is that their vegetation grows very quickly, says Hillary Stevens, Coastal Resilience Manager at Restore America's Estuaries. There's lots of photosynthesis, a lot of pulling of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, she explains. But the real magic is of the marsh is its salty, soggy soil. When, veg- when that vegetation dies, it falls to the bottom of the marsh and gets buried in a network of roots and sediment, where it remain indefinitely saturated with briny water. The anaerobic environment slows or even stops the decomposition process, allowing the carbon in the plants to stay stashed in the soil for hundreds or even thousands of years, 
This underwater vault is known as blue carbon. While forests are also excellent at trapping carbon, Stephen says, they're more likely to release it uh, through events ranging from wildflower, wildfire to decomposition. But the carbon in marsh soil can remain there for centuries if that area remains inundated and undisturbed. Of course, that's a big if when there are humans around. The United States lo- alone loses an estimated 80,000 acres of coastal wetlands each year due to a combination of development and sea level rise. Even many surviving marshes have, uh, have been ditched and drained over the years, allowing air to reach the long-submerged soil and turning powerful carbon sinks into leaky CO2 emitters. A lot of our remaining marshes aren't particularly healthy, but halting the continued loss of coastal wetlands would have the biggest climate impact of all. Uh, we would love to see better protection for existing blue carbon ecosystems, Stephen says, along with more coordinated government approach. Two pillars of Restore America's Estuaries Blue Carbon National Action Plan. A little bit on the marshes of some of the yeah. stuff I cut out is um, we've found it was really good forage for uh, for cattle, basically, and, and animals. So they would drain <laughs> drain the marshes so they could better harvest the, the salt hay to feed the animals. Um, and that caused a lot of issues because, like we said, the salty water is kind of what stops decomposition and allows that sediment to accrete yeah. and kind of what what we talk about today is actually keep up with sea level rise. Um, not a lot of places it is doing it fast enough to do that, but in some places it is. And um, one of the strategies they're using uh, is, and we talked about it actually on the podcast yesterday yeah. is uh, the podcast coming out next week that we recorded yesterday is they're cutting down some of the salt marsh hay, putting it in these old remnant ditches and then they like tack, like stake it down so it's stuck in place. And then when the water comes in, it slows down that rush of tidal water. And uh, and then eventually that stuff doesn't decompose because it's being flooded twice a day and, and keeps it from decomposing. So then you're filling those ditches back in naturally. Um, that's one of the, the I don't want to say misnomer. One of the things that they write the author writes in the intro about letting nature heal itself is um, we're letting it heal itself, but with a helping hand. Like we're yeah. doing things to let it heal itself because it wouldn't. We've already we've already done something to screw it up, so we now we need to do something to help it heal itself. If, if we just left it on alone, it wouldn't happen. One of the one of the themes yesterday at the conference, and I know you're still in the middle of yeah. your article, was that a lot of these sites can't heal themselves because yeah. of outside influence because you're it might be in an urban area mm-hmm. you're restoring this but there's so much influence from outside if left alone like fragmites can still come in and take over or all these things so without stewardship you know some of these grants are actually building in stewardship and a yep. lot of these jobs have five years of monitoring but you know one of the big things was how do we get money for stewardship how do we get mm-hmm. money for you know and these things have to occur or maintenance has to occur to you need that helping hand because they can't just heal themselves on yeah, their own, unfortunately. Yeah. So continuing with the article, uh, the next section was forest-feeding fungi. Uh, one of the main roles of those fungi in forests is decompose plant leaves, roots, and other plant parts and other dead microorganisms, and most of the activity happens in the soil. Uh, I don't know who I'm quoting because <laughs> I cut it out of the article. Um, in doing so, they release elements like nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur back into the soil in a form that plants can use. But there's a group that's particularly crucial to forest health, and that's mycorrhizal fungi, which live on the roots of plants and are one of the oldest symbiotic relationships found in nature. 
When mycorrhizal fungus colonizes a plant by growing on or inside of the, its root cells, the plant will send up to 30% of its carbon in the form of sugar produced through photosynthesis from its leaves down to its roots to feed the fungus. To return the favor, the fungus will use that carbon to extend out into the soil and absorb those nutrients that are being decomposed by other fungi, um, Batnagar says, and give them to the plant. The carbon ends up feeding not just the fungus, but also the nearby microbes, which help sequester carbon in the soil. A study published in June estimated an astounding 13.12 gigatons of carbon uh, fixed by plants each year is allocated to mycorrhizal fungi, at least temporarily. It's not yet known how much carbon is retained in the soil long term, but even half of uh, that would represent more than the annual carbon equivalent emissions of the United States. And the researchers suggest that fungi could be essential to reaching net zero. Uh, Next section is letting wildlife go wild. A 2023 study by the Yale-led or Yale ecology professor Adwal Schmitz found that protecting and restoring populations of animals can supercharge the carbon capture capabilities of the respective ecosystems. This can enhance the total amount of CO2 naturally absorbed and stored as much by 6.41 gigatons per year worldwide, or more than 14 trillion pounds of CO2. Endangered forest elephants in Central Africa, for example, spread the seeds of uh, trees and woody plants and trample and devour vegetative undergrowth, helping carbon-dense overstory trees grow faster and bigger. Restoring wild elephant populations within the region's 79 national parks and protected areas, uh, about five or 537,000 square kilometers of tropical rainforest, could help capture an estimated 13 megatons of additional CO2 per year, or 13 million metric tons. In the ocean, migrating marine fish eat algae near the surface, and their fecal matter drops to the ocean floor, and that nourishes photosynthesizing plankton. Fish also help the ocean lock up carbon as they rid their bodies of excess salt through the production of calcite, uh, a form of calcium carbonate. Calcite is a way of binding up salt, Schmidt said, but it's also a carbon-based unit. The hard pellets sink to the ocean bottom and don't break down easily. Marine fish currently help the oceans absorb 5.5 gigatons of CO2 annually without getting explicit credit for it. And Schmidt says over-harvesting fish or catching them in deeper waters could jeopardize the enormous underwater carbon vault. Uh, and in North America, where white settlers all but wiped out more than 30 million bison at once uh, that once roamed the prairies, uh, just 2% of the animal's one-time numbers remain, confined to about 1% of its historical range. Because heavy herds of grazing bison help grasslands retain carbon in soil, restoring their numbers across even a fraction of the landscape, less than 16% of a handful of prairies where human conflict would be minimal, could help those ecosystems store an additional uh, 595 megatons of CO2 annually, the study found. That's more than 10% of all the CO2 emitted by the United States in 2021. We could restore up to 2 million bison in parts of the prairie states where they're uh, going to have very little conflict with people, and in doing that, you'll be able to take up enough carbon to offset all of the prairie states, fossil fuel emissions, Smith explains. There's a lot, a lot going on there. There is so much more. I really encourage everyone to read the, the entire yeah. article. Um, you know how they give estimates on like how long it takes yeah. to read something? It's 17-minute read, uh, wow. read, so I took about, what, six minutes here? Um Cut a lot out, but not all of it. Uh, but there's so much more information in there. And uh, it's what this really showed to me is it's important to have complete functioning ecosystems. Um, you need to have the habitat, which is going to be the plants uh, primarily. Um, then you need to have the, the fungal networks because they are really important. And then you need to have the wildlife uh, interacting too. When you have all three... And it is across acres and acres and acres. You have something that is actually not just able to keep up with climate change and and human emissions, but 
maybe even uh, help reduce or, or capture that carbon and uh, offset a lot of the impacts that we're having, yeah. which is so, so important. And um, it's just, uh, it's something that's hard to, to recognize in your day-to-day <laughs> life. Cause it's all, oh, I got to drive my kid to school or I got to pick them up from dance class or I got to do this. I have to do that. It's, it's, uh, but doing that is, is creating carbon emissions. And then you have, it's also where the roads go used to be habitat for something. Um, so you're, it's a double-edged sword in a sense. Yeah. I like that. It's pointing out that there's no silver bullet. It's not just, you know, we'll, we'll plant more trees. We'll create another forest and that will fix everything that's going to handle it all. It's not, there's so many yeah. different ecosystems. You have oak savannas, you have savannas and glades and mm-hmm. you have your, your marshes and your grasslands yeah. and your temperate forests and all these different vernal pools, all these different little ecosystems and habitats that it's not just creating one thing that's going to fix it all. Yeah. You know, another thing we learned yesterday is the state of our our salt marshes isn't great, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yep. and it's – with sea level rise, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of uh, encroaching factors that, that, that kind of hurt these things every mm-hmm. day or make their, make their job harder to accomplish. So I like that it's – Saying, hey, I know. I think I had an article a month or two ago about California with mushroom studies yeah. with mushrooms oh, yeah. and and, and uh, carbon capture, and it's just I, I like that we have to keep thinking about all of these different types of restorations to to move forward. There's not you can't just focus on one. It's not just trees and it's not just grasses. It's a little bit of everything. So I, I appreciate the detail that they went into for this article. Oh like yeah. It. Yeah. They, and it goes into much more detail than I cover here, but um, yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know. It puts a lot of, it's very hopeful, but it puts a lot of things in perspective. Like, yeah. man, we are just our day to day lives are causing so many issues. And, and like, like Fran, how you're just saying, I'm getting off topic or off track of what I was about to say, but uh, what you're just saying about, it's you need a diverse approach. It's there isn't one single bullet. I think the salt marsh example is the best part. A salt marsh can only be in that that tidal area around the coast. You're not putting a salt marsh in. Well, yeah. I, you're, you're not putting this kind of salt marsh in Kansas. It's tidal salt marsh, salt marsh in Kansas. Uh, we have found out through the podcast that there are all are salt marshes in Nebraska. I know they're in upstate New York. In Syracuse. I'm sure yeah. there's in some other areas too, but you don't have tidal salt, marsh, salt marshes there. And so while they can be highly functional in capturing carbon and, and sequestering carbon, they're in really prized development zones. Well, I think we're starting to realize that, oh, you know what, maybe we shouldn't develop there because, or we shouldn't have developed there because of uh, the impacts with uh, coastal storms. Um have but so it's really prime development zone and um and it's a really narrow band that they can exist so while it's a a sequestering carbon along the new jersey coast does that help the impacts that are happening in syracuse new york yeah and to an extent the stuff that's running running the water that's coming downstream but is is that distance too far for it to really help no, and, and the other thing, too, that they mention is where human impact is minimal, you mm. know, because it's great if oh, you have yeah. a, a functioning marsh, but not if you have 
constant impact on that marsh or yeah. if if you're logging a forest you're not really yeah. doing the same mm-hmm. you know it's and, and so many of these places don't have minimal human impact unfortunately yeah. and they're they're not restored or recreated most of the time they take into a f- into account human interaction yeah because they want human oh, interaction yeah. with nature so it's, it's that uh the the conservationist preservationist restorationist dilemma is as a restorationist we want people to a lot of times we want to have a public facing side of this restoration so that people can see how important it is yes like if the one uh the liberty state park project yeah. they were showing the video of they had like a bird blind and this is actually a really cool idea so it's like a slatted probably eight feet tall of slatted wood um and it was big and it was like a big uh circle and sitting like high. circle walkway and it's sitting high looking over the marsh looking at the New York City skyline, but it had this slide of wood so that the birds would have trouble seeing the people, but a person could go and kind of like peek through the slats yeah. and see the bird activity that's going on. Why that was important to do is because if that that blind wasn't there, the birds probably wouldn't come that close to where the people were, except the ones that were getting fed. Yeah. Um, so it's just that was just a really interesting strategy uh, of how you can still have that divider line um, where we're not having the, the major human impacts on animals uh, and the environment, but still have them interact, uh, which is what we need in those kind of, because otherwise like you're going to have human traffic there from sunrise to sundown every single day. And it's going to become, uh, there, there's some surveys that have been done on like the human impacts on not all wildlife, but some wildlife. Yeah. Things like mountain lions that just don't want to be near people. Those kind, those kind of things. If you have people around, they're not going to be there. Um, and there's some birds that are like that. There's other things that are like that. So you want to have a public-facing part, but by doing that, there are certain wildlife that just and, – and probably plants too yeah. – that just aren't going to be present. Exactly. So um, it's – that's where if you're preserving it, well, now you have big, big blocks that the wildlife that need to use it can use, and it's open to all wildlife but closed from people. Now, just that, I'm going to say this out loud just so that we have some kind of record of it, but maybe as a future guest, the one head ecologist at the Meadowlands that talked about ticks hitchhiking on birds, mm-hmm. which I hadn't thought about, and as, as far yeah. as like – wildlife interaction and human interaction in, in the Meadowlands, maybe that would be a good yeah. Oh, yeah. conversation to talk about, like in some area where you kind of have that combination of all. Mm-hmm. Maybe that would be a, a good future future guess. Yeah, no, that sounds so. cool. Awesome. That's a great article, Tom. I, I really like this one. I have one that's actually shorter. This It's not too often that I have the shorter you're, article. You're right. But my article this week is called How to Save Plants from Climate Change. The answer may be the language of their tissues and physiology – this is by Holly Ober from the University of California, Los Angeles, and I found it on phys.org. Um, let's see here. So redwoods and oaks that thrive in California's coastline and coastal mountains might soon start finding it harder to survive. Human-caused climate change is altering the temperatures and rainfall patterns to which those and other trees are accustomed and may have already been pushed close to the edge of what they can endure. Identifying suitable new habitats will soon become a matter of life or death for some of California native species. According to Lauren Sack, a UCLA professor of ecology and evolutionary biology. But if those trees could talk, where would they tell scientists they wanted to live? 
In a new study, a team led by Sack and other UCLA biologists deciphered a secret language in leaves and woody stems that points to the species' optimal habitats. Scientists could use that information to better identify new locations where they could establish new populations of plants and to develop better protections for their existing habitats. Surprisingly, scientists and conservationists don't yet have a reliable way to determine the optimal environment for any given plant species. They tend to base their judgments primarily on the locations where the plant species currently grow, but for many plants, their current habitats aren't ideal. California, for example, has a wealth of species unique to certain climate niches and found nowhere else in the world, but agricultural industry and urban growth have pushed many of them to the edges of their habitats, and climate change has only exasperated the problem. So while it might seem logical to move species to habitats like those where, they, uh, where they're currently located or to only protect their current habitats, either approach could imperil the species' future survival. The new research published in Functional Ecology describes a statistical model that estimates each species' preferred temperature and amount of rainfall based on its height, the size, the wilting point, anatomy, and chemical composition of its leaves, and the density of its wood. Then, using the data, the scientists created a statistical model that predicts what temperatures and rainfall amounts each species preferred, not merely not what it could tolerate. The model also enables the scientists to estimate how mismatched a plant is from its native climate. Plant species can directly reveal to us their climate preference and their vulnerability to potential climate change in the language of their leaves and wood, said Sack, the paper's senior author. Now that we know this, if you give us a leaf and a piece of wood, we can give a good scientific prediction of where the plant prefers to live. We are tuning into what the plants are telling us about their preferences in the language of their tissue and physiology, aiming to help uh, help them survive escalating climate challenges. SAC working with UCLA postdoctoral scholar Camilla Medeiros and other international team analyzed 10 distinct leaf and wood traits from more than 100 species in a range of environments, mostly within the University of California Natural Research System. The uh, ecosystem types the scientists analyzed, desert, coastal, sage scrub, uh, chaparral, uh, montane wet forest, mixed riparian woodland, and mixed conifer broadleaf forest cover about 70% of California's land area. The correspondence of leaf and wood traits with species climate is striking, said Medeiros, the paper's first author. For example, species native to warmer, drier climates tend to be shorter in stature, with thicker and denser leaves and lower wilting points, traits that enable them to continue photosynthesis when water is scarce and grow faster when the water is more readily available. The reflection of species' preferred climate in their wood and leaves evidently arose from millennia of evolution that matched plant physiology to climate across California, Medeiros said. We also found that many plants in the ecosystem we sampled were occupying locations that differed in climate from what we estimated to be their optimal niche. Niche. Um, As climate changes its sue, we think this will tend to aggravate the sensitivity of many species, including common trees like the California buckeye, and shrubs like the purple sage and California lilacs. Scientists have long been divided over whether plants' functional traits could be used to accurately predict their climate preference, and until now, no test combined all of the available state-of-the-art measurement technologies, for example, uh, example, vapor pressure uh, osmometry to determine plants' wilting points with advanced statistical modeling. Some previous studies analyzed individual approaches one by one, but our study was new in simultaneously applying all of them, 
And this gives us an unprecedented predictive power, Madeira said. Madeira also said the approach could be used to help prioritize which threatened species are most in need of conservation. So I thought it was interesting. Like the fact that they can help predict this is amazing. But just when applied that they can look at some of these plants and go, this is where they're living, but this isn't where they should really be living. This isn't their – you know, they've managed to adapt through through climate change over the years or – environmental change and they're they're living but they're really being pushed to their edge and if this changes more we might lose them and it's i i never really thought of just throughout time you could say oh this plant historically has lived here for hundreds of years but how much has that condition changed over a hundred of years and is it really in its ideal mm-hmm. thing now we know wetland indicator status uh, developed by U.S. Fish and Wildlife, um, which was, uh, I think, an act of Congress where they went in and they actually surveyed all the plants, uh, picked different regions if regions changed just what their natural occurrence was in wetlands. So you kind of have an idea like this plant, oh, an obligate 99% of the time is found in wetlands. Mm. But has that changed over that? What, was, what would that a model have been 200 years ago? Or 250 years. Just because that's where they're occurring now, is that where they belong? I just thought that was a very unique yeah, observation. Yeah, that's a, an, interesting, an interesting component. And it's um, it makes me wonder how, yeah, how much has changed since they did the initial yes. designations. I'm, I'd assume that there's people who are going out and changing those designations. I don't know. They did yeah. – there used to be like a plus and minus system. So something yeah. could be facultative plus or facultative minus, and I know they've done away with that. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you were to redo that survey today, how many plants would change what that initial range was. Yeah, but with your article, it seemed like they were even getting – they could get more specific than that. Oh, oh, definitely. I, I'm just naming one – yeah. One way that we keep plants now before this, but just the, the, the their wilt, um, uh, what's, how do they phrase it? Um, the wilting point, mm-hmm. you know, that's something I hadn't really considered. And what yeah. is each point's wilting point? Like we see it in the nursery. Oh, yeah. Like if you have a, a, a hot day or, mm-hmm. or really, um, like say you, you miss a cycle on a, on a yeah. watering, like what triggers that plant to wilt? And yeah. that's not even in really in a natural setting. That's in a controlled yeah, setting. Yeah, yeah. It's a verbena hastata, real quick wilting point. Yeah. Iris versicolor, you can let them things stay dry for a while. Yeah, exactly. And But those are plants that – They have that fleshy – I'm trying to think. I haven't – Fleshy I, blade that probably holds more moisture. Iris versicolor is an obligate. Verbena hastata is facultative wet, right? Yes. Yeah. I've never seen them – I'm sure it's happened – Anecdotally, I haven't seen them. Where I see a lot of Rubina hastata, I can't say I've seen much iris. Yes. I've never really seen yeah. – honestly, most of the plantings I've seen have – or most of the iris I've seen have been from plantings. I don't know yeah. that I've ever naturally come across iris in the wild. Yeah, I'm trying to think about it. You know, I've come across cardinal flower and things like that. Can't Montedaria, say I've ever – like that kind of stuff. Um, all the time, yeah. Acaris, uh Sorry, all kinds pit, of so that's pickerel yeah. weed and, sorry, and uh, yeah. sweet flag. Yep. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, all kinds of that. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen 
Iris in the Wild either. You want to know a good little trick? This is for all the the pawpaw hunters out there, um, and and morel hunters too. <laughs> yes, and any yeah. kind of mushroom. Any really, it's any plant you want to look at. One of the the best tips I can give. This is not my secret. Other people do this too. Go on iNaturalist, and there's if you go to the map, there's like a search function. So like zoom out as far like I look around our area. So from like 195 south to Mount Laurel yeah. or 38 ish. Um, and then I'll so I zoom out to that area, and then I'll search like I did it this morning. I searched a similar triloba, <laughs> and then I just see where other people found them and put them on the map. And some people are doing it on because they know what it is. A yeah. lot of people are doing because they don't know what it is. They're trying to ID it, but then I just oh, well, there's there's a apparently a patch in Bordentown <laughs> of uh, of pawpaws. And uh, the Morel folks are a little bit they're on to that trick. They don't they don't do it as as tightly. But I know where um, there's a. Uh like a patch and that somewhere close. I'll let you know. Yeah. 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 It's right down the road actually. Yeah. So that's your, your little trick. If you're, if you're want to take a hike, you don't mind like getting out in the woods a little bit and, uh, and want to find certain things. That's a a great way to start. Cause then you're like, Oh, I know that this should be around here. And it's, it's a little tougher when there's only one instance of it. It's like, if you have multiple instances in that area, you're a little bit more, because I've I've done it before where I was like I took a picture at our farm and then I don't ID it until I get back to our nursery and I didn't have the the location settings turned on in the pictures so I had a whatever yeah. this is very technical yeah. for, <laughs> for even for me <laughs> um, but yeah that's a, a great trick to see I'm gonna, that is I'm a great gonna trick. do that right now so I want to see trick. where people saw right. Iris Versicolor around here all right so I'm going to uh, also write down. Paul Paul, so I can tell you off the air because I don't want to give away the location. You don't want to do it as today's secret, friend? No, no, no. I'm good. It's on private property, mm. so I can't. I can't do that. That would be wrong of me. But anyway, two fantastic articles. You have uh, Tom's, which is on uh, Nature's Toolbox, uh, fun, fungi, marshes, and other uh, unsung climate heroes. You have mine on. Um, how to save plants from climate change. The answers may be in the language of their tissues and physiology. On Monday, this vote is going to go up on our Facebook group, and you will get the choice to vote, and make sure you do because... And of course, the choice is yours. Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. This is uh, your your you have uh, your work cut out for you. We're getting oh, ready I to know. do uh, listener shoutouts. Yeah, I should probably pull up. Uh, well, pull I'll up, pull up <laughs> the, the list here. <laughs> Hold on, it's loading. All right, listener, listener, shout out, shout out. You know, while you're doing that, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw my two out. So, uh, first is Jessica from First Energy, who's one of our customers. And when she called the other day, she uh, made sure she threw in that she enjoys the podcast. So we appreciate you listening. Thank you so much, Jessica. And my second would be from Bob Matlin, who sent us an email uh, over the weekend, or actually it was yesterday. And he is our listener that's starting at the beginning and is currently at January 2021 and offers some feedback as to that buzz episode, which I'm actually saving for my this or that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I thought it was a good – he had a very good point, and I thought it would be a good conversation to have. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and those are my two listener shout-outs. How, who do you have? Oh, gosh, friend. You have a lot. I yeah. tried to I tried to <laughs> tell you where they came from. So if, if I don't have anything next to it, it's Apple. Okay. Yeah, because I'm going to have to switch back and forth between sites here to do it all. Yeah. There's a lot. Um, so we had uh, Garden, Garden Okoji. I'm assuming that's how Garden you know. Akaji. Garden Akaji. I don't know. Um, where do people come up with some of these names? I wonder if it's, it was a typo. I wonder if it was supposed to be Gardenology and they hit K be. instead of L. Yeah, they're, they're right, right next, next to each, each other. other. <laughs> Look at that. Maybe we solved them. Maybe they didn't even know. It's, or maybe the L was taken. So they, oh, that's yeah, true. They're right like next Gardenology. to each other. Use a, but um, they felt that we were informative and original and the coast make good company, So, which makes me think we know this person too. I'm so, one. I'm wondering. Or if yeah. they just mean like if they're listening to us, we make good company that way. Okay. I don't yeah. know. Well, I if you know. do know us, Gordon Nakaji, <laughs> come, let us know who you are. Reveal yourself now. MTUAN475 says that we're a terrific podcast and one of their favorites, and uh, they continue to learn so much. So uh really appreciate that. Thank you for uh, that. This is a name I'm assuming that I know where they got this from. I don't know who they are, but uh, JG87IROC. I'm <laughs> guessing that they had – what's the what's the Camaros were IROCs? What's the IROC? Yeah, or is that a Pontiac? Uh, IROC was – I wasn't old. I wasn't uh, born yet. I don't know if IROC was a Trans Am. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, I am uh, old enough, and I should know because IROC was like a big deal when I was in high school. Yeah. I'm, are you looking it up? I'm trying to. IROC car. Uh, yeah, Chevy – History shapes the Chevy Camaro. I rock. Oh, it's a, it's a Camaro. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, JG. Sorry. <laughs> so we, sorry. I didn't want to mix up. <laughs> Don't let me get my uh, Trans Am and your, uh, your Camaro. But they thought we were uh, a fantastic combination of being in, informative and entertaining. And um, then we had uh, 10D. Uh, tenacious D. You think that's. Could be. Uh, well, Tennessee. Um, was, was, could be Tennessee defense. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Tennessee, thinking t- Tennessee defense. defense. <laughs> <laughs> it could be um, tenacious D. Enjoys the various guests and loves to hear about the importance of habitat restoration uh, and uh, the sense of community when they're surrounded by manicured lawns and invasives. Um, Wild Quinine loved the Camille Dungy episode and uh, has been listening for a while, but that was the one that made him put in put in the, the review. So your editor win a book. Um, friend, you're going to have to stop me when I – no, too far. Okay. At my fave Packer is that a new one? Uh, I'm, I'm not no. reading on your Wait, list. You know, Did I do what? that one already. I think we've done that one already. I think that was the last one. Why don't you? Since you brought it All up, right. why don't Let's, you say it? Uh, we had my fave Packer. Um, yeah, because yours is backwards of mine too. Yeah, I oh, think gosh. that was. I, I'm pretty sure that was the last episode. They thought we were a great team and gave us a big thumbs up. I think I did that one too. Now I'm reading it. Then let's see. We had uh, Rent Eight. Left something on Spotify that I I don't know how to look those up. So thank you very much, Rent Eight, for for putting that in there. Um, Steam uh, A C O Y T E. I wonder if it was supposed to be Acolyte, and I missed I missed the L. Oh, that that could make sense. I think it was Steam Acolyte. Uh, Steam Acolyte uh, left a comment on our YouTube, and uh, that they that were was... happy that we're accepting YouTube comments exactly. to be entered into the into the uh contest yeah and then another one of our longtime listeners that i know who's actually going to be here tomorrow i'm okay. assuming they're going to be here um ryan butcher 
finally did something on yeah. Spotify. Nice. To, to enter in. Yeah. So, that's very, yeah, very thanks, cool. Ryan. So thank you, Ryan. We appreciate that. But that was a lot of reviews. And I, I have to thank everyone that took the time. I, Whether you're doing it to be entered in the contest or not, it means a lot to us. And it really helped push us back up the charts. Like mm-hmm. it was nice to see us uh, yeah. beat out a couple Bigfoot. There's actually 10 Bigfoot podcasts ahead of us. Oh, I know. I've, I've counted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the one. That's a, that drives me one crazy. of my, I don't, I'm bored. I don't know what else to do on my phone. Let's see how many Bigfoot podcasts are ahead of us in the nature category. How is that nature? Yeah. If you can't prove to me, if you can't prove to me without a shadow of a doubt that it exists, how can you consider it nature? Well, Fran, they, uh, I, this is actually, uh, I don't want to get too off topic here. But, um, and this was actually a really interesting perspective. At one of our Christmas parties uh, a few years ago now, uh, Pastor Neil, who's our, yes. our community pastor, good family friend of ours, he comes to our Christmas party and does like the blessing in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he said, scientists admit that we probably don't know like 99% of what's going on in the universe, but we can definitively say that God's not real. Same thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We don't know ninety nine percent of what's going on out there, but we can definitively say Bigfoot's not real, friend. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, Could be out there. Uh, all right, listen. In order for Bigfoot to keep surviving, yeah, there has to be a community of of Bigfoot. Yeah, really, more than that are mating. A handful. So at some point, a baby Bigfoot would have to wander out into the streets. For me, the what that kind of. At least disproves that Bigfoot is living on the East Coast. West Coast, okay, I can buy a little more. There hasn't been a single Hunter's Trail Cam picture of him. Oh, that's right. We, there's you hoax can pick ones. up skate skate yeah. convicts. Escape convicts. <laughs> you get hoax. Uh, uh, what's it called? Mountain lions all the time, where yeah. people are like, "Oh, we got mountain lions in New York now." Yeah, <laughs> probably not. No. It's, it's someone else's mountain lion picture, and then you're just saying it was yeah. yours in New York. But um, but yeah, we don't have any of Bigfoot. There's like, it is kind of strange that the, the Hunter Network has like a, a security system for the woods. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there are so many trail cameras out there. If you walk around on like uh, on public uh, access hunting land, yeah. it's like the amount of trail cameras that you walk past, and then then I'll look at something like, why would you put it there? All right, That's not a weird just that. Spot. For for an animal that big, I hate that we're having a Bigfoot discussion. Yeah. But for for something that large, all right, is it a carnivore? Is it an herbivore? And it would have to consume if it's constantly walking and hiding. It would have to consume a fair amount. So what is it eating? Like how much wildlife? Like no one's missing a cattle, or no one's like, oh, my trees just stripped all of a sudden. Well, I think that happens all the time, and that's where the Bigfoot rumors come from. Okay, all right, but uh. Did I, have I ever talked about mountain monsters on here? No. In my experience with no. mountain monsters. All right, let's hear have. it. Well, you I'll, want to save it for a secret? For secret. Right. My secret that I did have was uh, was really not that much of a secret. All right, let's do it for I, the secret. Okay. Mountain monsters. Yeah. All right. There you go. All right. I'm writing it down. All right, so we don't have any questions this week, but I see that you do have a Grow Read a book. Yeah, I was – how much time – how long have we been doing this? Uh, an hour. Okay. So, yeah, I, I can good. throw it in there. All right. Uh, Grow read a book. I like books. <laughs> All right, what do you got? Uh, so I've been reading a lot of books by David Grant recently. Okay, um, he's probably most people are familiar with either this book, uh, "The Lost City of Z," or 
uh, one of his other books, which is Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a Martin Scorsese movie that's about to come out, I oh, think, okay. this month, early next month. Um, and that's, I think, about the formation of the FBI. Oh, and uh, I just started listening to that one last night, actually. And um, and that's basically, it takes place in Oklahoma on the Osage Reservation. Okay. And the part I've gotten through so far is uh, the Osage were Plains people, lived in Kansas and I think Nebraska, and then got kicked out of their land by white settlers. And uh, actually, Little House on the Prairie, Lure in his wild, that's where they moved oh, was okay. that, that area. Um, and they got kicked to like northeastern Oklahoma, and then turns out there's a ton of oil <laughs> under their <laughs> reservation. So they all got rich, and um, basically they had you had these really rich Native American people, um, and then their servants were white people, and it was just the interesting dichotomy yeah. of the times where you had like what was considered a lesser class of people being the ruling class over. The, the premier class at that time yeah. um, or, or how a lot of people thought back then. Anyway, that's the other book <laughs> or another book. <laughs> you wrote. I also recently listened to the, a book called the wager, which had a, uh, was very interesting, but I had a lot less to do with, um, with uh, what's it called? Plants. Uh, plants. And <laughs> this even had, this book didn't even have that much to do with plants. It was just more the concepts of, uh, well, it followed this, the story of this guy, uh, P.H. Fawcett, who was a, a lieutenant colonel in the uh, British military. And prior to that, in World War II, he was like an acclaimed explorer, specifically in the Amazon jungle. And uh, goes to, uh, or exploring all through the jungle. Uh, World War One starts, goes back, fights in World War One. Then he's like in his 50s, goes back to the Amazon, raises money. Like, basically, uh, the United Kingdom didn't have any money to support his explorations anymore. Um, so he fundraises on his own and ended up going back. Ended up bringing his son and his son's friend, and then they all vanished. They just disappeared, never to be heard from wow. again. And there's all this speculation of what happened to him. Uh, did they decide? And there's, like, it's become a – it was a pop culture phenomenon back then that's even lasted almost to today. Um where you had all these people go searching for this guy wow. because they were like, what, what happened to him? And they would go in the Amazon and, and go, and a lot of them went missing and wow. or died. Um, Bigfoot. Maybe. <laughs> it could be Bigfoot. <laughs> but, uh, the interesting part was just, uh, how they treated the, the native people in that area. And like, and the, it was, I think, the book talks about uh, the native people and how they uh, often treated them as savages. Uh, a lot of them were perceived to be cannibalistic and may have actually even been cannibalistic. Oh. Um, so that's some of what they think might have happened to them. Is there's one of the tribes that didn't like uh, people or explorers coming in, and just kill them, and then yeah. you're never to be seen from again if the right people get you. Yeah. Um, just because it, part of well. That was one of the interesting components, is that interaction between explorers, uh, Europeans kind of moving in, and the native unca uncontacted or lightly contacted tribes that were living really, really remote. Um, how unhospitable these places were for people who didn't know how to deal with them yeah. was another really interesting component 
of that book with just not the insects, the wildlife, the fish. Uh, and then you had, on the flip side, these native people who were thriving in these environments. Um, and historically, the lost city of Z was said to be uh, a ancient city that rivaled any uh, European or, or uh, Middle Eastern city at their heyday uh, that dated back thousands of years. And like they were saying, there's tens of thousands of people lived in the city that were all native people. And it was with contact with Europeans kind of caused disease. And then it just collapsed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just really interesting that relationship. And, uh, and the third thing that was really interesting is they talked about how fast you'd have, like they, they did find like these massive yeah. cities in the Amazon, in South America, like Machu Picchu is one. Oh yeah. And just how reclaimed they were by the jungle really not even that long after they were abandoned. Um, and it was just like, it was walking through and they're like, if we hadn't looked in this exact spot just by chance, we would never, we would walk right by never knew that this was a, a giant piece of civilization at one point. Now you, you probably have recognized it and you, you don't have like the, the before knowledge to compare, but you've driven to pleasant run mm-hmm. to their, their nursery, yeah. which is on the grounds of the former, Princeton Nurseries, which I was employed at before here. There was a huge – on the corner of Ellisdale Road, there was a huge shipping yard. It was all stone. Uh, there was a block barn, and there was a wholesale yard. When you drive by that now – now, now, granted, it's been it's been 16 years. Actually, no, it's probably been 14 – like 13, 14 years since they closed the doors. Um, but like within a year since they closed their doors, it nature reclaimed it. Like you'd go by, and you're like, oh, my god, this looks like it's been – deserted for 40 years not four years so when you uh, when i drove by it the other night for the pleasant run gala i was completely shocked you couldn't even see through the woods where that shipping yard was and nature completely took it over so i can't and like and it happened so quickly and that's in in a little bit more of a an open setting like a not urban but a suburban setting that happened that quickly mm-hmm. so i can imagine in a place surrounded oh, by yeah. by nature, it it going away pretty pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. No, it was uh, is a fascinating story. Really, not necessarily plant or plant related. Um, a lot. Well, the wager and then uh, and then this book were very much tied into British exploration. It gave a lot mm-hmm. of the background of yeah. uh, British and then Victorian era explanation to an extent. Um, the wager was kind of predating that, and then this book post dating that. But, uh, yeah, just a really fascinating story and just how afterwards, after he disappeared, is the family didn't give up hope that they had died. They yeah. thought, oh, maybe they were adopted by a, a native tribe. Yeah. Maybe they found the, this El Dorado of sorts and decided to stay. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe they were picked up by cannibals. Maybe this happened. Maybe that happened. Uh, and there was just like all these stories, and then there was a lot of uh, of um, people who were trying to capitalize on that and say, "Well, I'm the one who I I was the last person to see him, and uh-huh. this is what happened to him," and try and write write their books yeah. and, and make money off of it. Um, but then the author eventually, with this story, went and um, and went in the Amazon himself, not to necessarily uh-huh. look for. This was yeah eighty years after the fact. Not necessarily to look for Fawcett, but to kind of finish the st- or tell the story in a sense. And 
because it was only 80 years ago, he was able to talk to people who met Fawcett wow. when they were little kids. And uh, there's one uh, tribal uh, grandmother who was like, oh, yeah, I remember when the three white men came in and and they we talked about this and we they stayed here for two days and then they went that way and like <laughs> it was and she was like i was a little girl but it was uh she remembered that happening and uh because i'm and sure that of, was quite the event yeah and know? he kept kind of like piecing things together and it was like there was a, a story where they'd stopped at a cattle ranch it was in the middle of the which was kind of an interesting thing to me is they're talking about oh we were in like such jungle and no one had ever set foot here before outside the native tribes and then all of a sudden they're at this cattle ranch <laughs> and i'm like wait, wait so how did the cattle ranch get there if you got yeah. there anyway this guy goes to that cattle ranch and um and they're asking the locals and like, oh where is that ranch and someone's like oh, i'll take you there and they just stopped in the middle of the forest and they're like where's the ranch and he's like it was right here this is the wow. foundation of the house that they used to wow. have and um and it was just complete completely taken over so it's just a yeah it was just a really fascinating story and then eventually he they found i shouldn't say they found there was another explorer that they referenced along the way in the book who was actually living with one of the tribes and he found like an ancient city okay um which could be yeah that the city they were talking about the whole time but it gives like a nice conclusion on it where they found something and they're saying, I guess there was a rumor that there was a, a holy animal that they had that would come from town to town and build a moat to protect its people. Okay. And they, you could actually see the moat and like, they're looking at, it was just like a small depression in the ground. Like this is where the moat was and look at all the pottery that we can find and look at yeah. all this stuff. And, um, yeah, so it was just, that's pretty amazing. His, interesting. Historically, you have the mystery faction of what, well, what happened to this guy you have this like uh, Bigfoot esque faction <laughs> of like, oh, there's an El Dorado out there yeah. that they're looking for. Maybe they're going to find treasure at the end. But uh, yeah, the, the big takeaways for this podcast were uh, just the interactions with a, a really famous ecosystem, I guess, and how abused it's been um, going back generations, really. So. Yeah. Awesome. That sounds like a great book, Tom. Yeah. Thank yeah, you for was, sharing I, that. I like a lot of like scientific nonfiction in this fit right in. That's awesome. That's awesome. So we don't have a Tom's Petty and we're, we haven't done not that I'm one to complain in a while. Take it or leave it. This is going back to Bob Matlin's email today. Mm -hmm. And it was one where we were talking about the amount of money that Jeff Bezos had put into the environment. Yeah. And Bob's thoughts were – should that really be celebrated because a billionaire in, – in his opinion, there's no self-made billionaire. Billionaires are made mm -hmm. by the work of many, many people. Yeah. Um, and a lot of damage is done ecologically for a business to be – Yeah. Like oh, create sure. that big. So should he really be lauded, lauded for doing this work? Does, does it really offset the damage done? And that made me – made yeah. me think should we be applauding donations from big businesses or should we have more stringent environmental laws to prevent some of these things from happening in the first place yeah um and it's a tr that's a really tricky subject and it's something where cuz you're going to have people less yeah. government and more protect and and 
this this country was built on the not the promise, but the hope that you could you could create a, a pretty good living. The now, American what, dream. The American yeah. dream. Yeah. So, um, and what? It's, it's a tricky one because it's it's hard to not have that sound bite that makes you sound really bad. I guess. Uh, yeah. In yeah. a sense, I think it's. Um, this is the hand that we're dealt and with with this situation in particular. Yeah. If it wasn't Jeff Bezos, it was gonna be somebody else. Exactly. And I don't think and, I don't think the um intent was to put down Jeff Bezos. Oh yeah, it no, was more I, that I agree. I think that the overriding sentiment was sometimes money talks more than our ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And that's just how, yeah. but that's just how humans are. Yeah, it is. and this is going back, like even even in I'm just talking about those Amazonian yeah. tribes that it was this not to the extent because they didn't have the technology that uh, that at that interaction they had. Yeah. But back when they're talking about that loss of the Z, they're saying, "Well, the technology was probably just as great, if not greater, than what they had in other parts of the world," um, and it was that a lot of the European disease contact is what wiped a lot of it out and made them these tribal people that, that didn't, I don't want to say couldn't get out of the woods, but, but didn't get out of the, the Amazon forest. Um, but going back to like the beginning of um, probably, prob- probably pre civilization, prehistory humans, that was, we live in a competitive society and people are always trying to uh you know i was talking about that book the wager and that was what yeah and there's they did research on this the book the wager it was a a i talked about this on the last buzz too but it was a shipwrecked uh british naval vessel uh off the coast of patagonia and what happened is the crew that had lived um there a lot of them died on the way of scurvy um, but uh, the crew that was alive and on this island mutinied against the captain, left him there with a few loyal people, and somehow made it to Brazil and then made it back to England. And then years later, the captain shows up with, <laughs> with a couple of the people saying, those guys aren't, like, they're, they mutinied. Like, they need to have this whole military tribunal because yeah. they left me there. Um, but a lot of that process comes down to, how when they were so hungry, when they were starving, the lengths they would take for, to survive, and how they they didn't they lost all sense of camaraderie as a military unit, and were backstabbing each other and murdering each other and stealing from each other just so that I could eat. I didn't yeah. care about you anymore. Yeah. I was your best friend during the day, but at night I was stealing your bread yeah. and I was stealing your meat. Um, and that's just how it, it sucks to say, but that's kind of how human yeah. nature is. It, it's animalistic nature. That's what happens. Yeah. Um, so that's, I guess, my point is, if it wasn't Jeff Bezos, it was going to be somebody else or someone else. It's happening across the globe, and where geopolitically, where it gets tricky, in my opinion, where it gets tricky is if we. Go like overregulate and and try and and do. I don't want to say do things more environmentally. I want us to do things more environmentally. I want us to take our profits and invest them in environmental causes. 
Um, but if we overregulate that or do too much of that on the global stage, we're going to lose, and then we aren't going to have the money to do anything because you're going to see it happening from China and India and these other countries that are going to take over that. And do they care as much? They yeah. might care more about those causes yeah. than we do. That's where it gets really tricky. And that's, you know, I look at it like I, I kind of responded saying I just spent a whole day yesterday with a lot of people that really care, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and and you see all this great work being done. And I, I guess my hope is that you have businesses being created that have more an environmental Mm-hmm. Uh, conscious about their footprint that they're leaving yeah. and do things. And I'm like, TerraCycle is a perfect example. I'm like, yeah. you're not there yet <laughs> as far yeah. as yeah. It's listening. where the episodes not, yeah. are. Yeah, you're not there yet. But you're going to hear about – we try to highlight some companies that are trying to make a difference this way. And hopefully it's it's a small movement, but over time that movement becomes much larger and you can change the mindset of some of these companies and have them make mm-hmm. more of a difference. Like I'll take it because you're right. It could have been a company that says, I don't care to even give back. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying he's a champion for doing so. Just saying it's appreciative that yes. that yeah. you're doing that work because you don't have to. And you hope that some of these companies take a more environmental approach in how they do business. We, I think it's just uh, – and it, this is also human nature to look at the folks that may have – a little bit more than we do and and dislike <laughs> dislike yeah, them for yeah. that. And um one of the things that I I see a lot on Facebook is so much mud being flung at like the Home Depot and Lowe's of the world. And I don't think people recognize that they're steering the ship when it comes to plants. Yeah. They so and they're actually doing they're the ones that push for the neonic free stuff. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't nurseries. It wasn't garden centers. It was Home Depot and Lowe's saying, "Hey, we found out this stuff. We want to be like neo more responsible. More We're responsible. trying to be more responsible." So, so anyone who wants, if you want to sell at Home Depot or Lowe's, you need to not use these anymore. Or if you do, you're getting labeled with a skull and crossbones. Yeah, it was was what they were talking about back in the day. Um, that wasn't garden centers. There were garden centers that were doing that. Yeah, you had native plant growers that were preaching that. Yes, but your typical chain garden center or, or or bigger garden center they weren't saying that yeah. so but what you see when you go on facebook is oh don't buy from home depot and lowe's because they're everything that's going there is sprayed with all kinds of pesticides i'm friends with folks who grow for home depot and lowe's they're using less than or less of that stuff than a lot of other people i yes. know yeah. um there's there's a lot of nurseries that are going direct to landscape or going to some of these other garden centers where they are spraying a ton so now at the same time, yeah, I, I think you should support the businesses you want to see in your community. You want to have a, a rural community full of small uh, local shops, you got to support them. You shouldn't be going to the Amazons of the world then because you, but you got to admit, oh, I got to pay more. I might have to wait a little longer. Um, I'm going to have to get in my car and drive there or, or, or somehow find a way to get that to my house, uh, pay a little extra delivery fee. I'm not getting free shipping. Uh, I did just hear something the other day talk about Amazon free shipping and how it's really shooting them and everyone else in the foot um, because they don't have to do it, but they did it, but and now they can't not do it anymore. And it's costing them. They're losing so much money, and it's built into all these uh, other fees they have. And the fees end up going to the the third-party 
distributors, the retailers yeah. they have, and then they have to charge more to make up for the fees. And then on their own websites, they can't undercut Amazon. So then they have to sell their stuff for more on their own website. And if they don't offer free shipping, no one's going to buy it from their own website. So they got to do that, which yeah. means they raise the price even more. And but it's thing, like a self – it just keeps getting higher. The thing is, though, with Prime, I don't know if you've ever looked. It's not really free shipping. Like mm-hmm. if you – say you, you look at a product that's – you're logged in under Prime and it's say two yeah. free two-day shipping, it's $5. Log out and look at the same item. I've been doing that. I know in the beginning it was it, like it that. It was like that in the beginning. Recently, I it's, they're the same. Okay. Oh, okay. And it's because I have a, a nursery account, which we don't have Prime, and I have a personal account that I do have Prime. Okay. And sometimes I'll buy it on my personal account because I need it the next day, yeah. and it's the same price typically. Yeah. I was going to say. It's it's, this, they've kind of passed that. It, that's how have, it started, but I think okay. they passed a lot of that to their But you were getting quicker shipping. Like from. instead of like three, four-day oh, shipping, yeah. you were getting it two days. Yep. So you were, getting, yep. you were paying to just get it faster. Yeah. But if – if that's changed, I haven't looked in a while, but I know at the beginning that's that's how it was. I know a couple, and then I, this might have changed since I last looked, uh, but a year ago, um, Amazon was behind a lot of the EV push, like with electric vehicles, which is something yeah. globally we're, we're kind of pushing towards. Um, so, but it's not UPS. UPS isn't pushing for... Yeah. EVs, as far as I know, FedEx isn't pushing for EVs. That's a their their kind of trucks are a lot harder to go EV. But Amazon had an order with Rivian, which but I don't know exactly what happened there. They might have backed out of it. So well, it's if, um, if you look at uh, waste management uh, locally, their entire fleet is run off natural gas, yeah, uh, and not not gasoline. So uh, that was a huge push for them. Now, it made sense business-wise because they're like, it's quieter and we can actually go into neighborhoods earlier in the day to, col- to collect. But still, it was it was something that made sense for them. Now, it's a, it's a business business decision. They were able to look at it and make sense and go, oh, maybe this will save us money. Maybe we can get more work done. But they yeah. still did it. It's uh, Listen, I'm not naive. I'm sure there's companies lobbying to not have to do these things <laughs> or for laws not to be passed. Uh to make things harder envir- uh, for them environmentally, but mm-hmm. like I'm not I'm not naive to think that everyone has the best intentions. But yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a tricky question. It's way more complex. Um, I I wanted to respond to the email too, and uh, I'll probably respond way before they, they listen, to this. listen, <laughs> listen to, this. to this episode. But yeah, it's just um, obviously I think that. Like a fair living wage is a is something that people need, um, and that's I'm really kind of excited to see Brad, Brad Madriski. Actually, I just became friends with uh, Facebook friends with him this morning, and uh, after meeting him yesterday, and he put something up about like the United Auto Workers strike yeah. and how oh they're asking for a 32 hour work week and a 40 percent raise, and kind of drew out just like this is what a 40 percent raise. Okay, they're going from like twenty five dollars an hour to to thirty five or whatever it was. Um, they're making way more money an hour. That's a big deal to that yeah. worker. But when you actually looked at how much cost it adds per car, it ended up being like three hundred bucks. Yeah, and then okay, now you'd go all the way to the the uh, GM or General Motors, or whatever. And well, they made X amount of dollars last in profit, year yeah. in profit. So. It's really it's a fraction of a, an expense for them, where it's a big deal for the yeah. employee. Now, I think the issue is 
this because this is what happened with college, like college tuition costs. Um, when that person, that household now has more income, the people who they're buying from can now charge more to yeah. capture more of that. Um, we can go down so many. Oh, rabbit I, holes. I don't want to go down the college no. tuition rabbit hole, but uh, yeah. Especially when I know what <laughs> when my son graduates oh, from God. graduate school today, yeah. how much in debt he is. Yeah, like, and the prospects of of a job for him mm-hmm. aren't that fantastic. Yeah, given yeah. the major he took. Yeah, and so much so. of that's because the well, it's, it's a at the I think this is still a case in some regard, but for my generation, like that third mid thirty year old coming out and saying, you got to go to college, college, college. Oh, look, there's all these student loans you can get for college that are federally backed and guaranteed. So now the college can and university can say, well, I, they can get a loan for $50,000. doesn't matter if they pay it back. I'm getting $50,000 regardless. So yeah. why don't I make sure I get that $50,000? Yeah. Why would I charge 40000 when I can guarantee to get fifty? Yeah. It's, well, I that know, was kind of the approach. I know with it's, my son, like, he he chose a profession that is very well paying, but we just read an article that said, "Oh, this is a boom for this profession," and they estimate that over the next ten years in this boom, it's going to create one hundred more jobs. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and it's like, all right, one hundred. Now it's not something that a lot of people major in. Mm-hmm. Like I I know for his school, only six in the graduate program they accept six students yeah. a year. So it's not a lot, and there's not very many. He was limited to where he could go that had this as a major. But that's not a lot of prospects. He's having trouble getting an internship, and I know – like he was willing to put the money out in student loans given what this profession will pay, Mm -hmm. but he can't can't find a job. Yeah. You know, and that's that's the hard part. That's the reality of it, Mm -hmm. so – Yep. Anyway, and, uh, don't want to end on on a not bad a day. lot of that is uh is like I said, people from that forty to like your son's age, and it's still happening, just getting pushed towards college, and it's like this is what you have to do yeah. if you want to be successful, you want to be anything like you have to do this. Oh, don't worry about it. You can get loans for this. It's not mm-hmm. a, and you don't have to pay them until you're you're done. Oh, don't worry about it. And you had these adults telling impressional 18 year old kids that this is what you if you want to be anything like this you is what you this. have to do yeah and well what are you 17 18 years old what are you going to do not listen <laughs> it's so yeah. that's yeah i don't we and, don't and i really feel like i'm, I'm of the last that. generation yeah. that you didn't have to go to college to yeah. have a career now yeah. you don't you still don't have to go to college you can go to a good trade oh, school I think you can like yeah. i look at plumbers electricians and and the careers that they have and i'm like that's it, it's not easy yeah. work. It's hard work, but you can still make a really good living. My brother-in-law is uh, he works in construction, and he's, he just turned thirty and is no like no uh, no college degree. Um, went to trade school, but is not working in his trade, and he's just a, a hardworking. He's not a kid anymore. He's thirty, but he's just a hardworking guy, and he's make like he's doing really really well he yeah. can live a really comfortable life no student debt yeah and it's just he bet on himself put himself out there and said yeah as long as if i show up every day and and work hard and like and be make myself available yeah. then 
he's and he's very well compensated for that. You know, there's and, there's there's two ways to look at it. You know, I, my former father-in-law who uh, worked at a steel mill, and it closed at a time that. He was at the right age with the right amount of years that he got a full pension. And I was like, that's great. You got to retire mm-hmm. early. That's fantastic. He goes, no, because I worked night shifts and I missed everything that my kids did and I was miserable and grumpy and I worked with derelicts and it wasn't a good life. I'm, yeah. I'm getting rewarded now, but I missed a lot that I'll never get back. Yeah. You know, and these jobs are hard. You know, I, I was just talking to someone who's in their mid 60s that has a master's degree and he's like, I look at the guys that went to work at the dock. Mm-hmm. Out of high school while I went to college, way better off than I ever was. Yeah. Like I'm still paying back college and they're retired mm-hmm. at this point. Now, I'm not saying they had easy jobs. I'm sure it was really hard work. You know, yeah. it's just that dichotomy. But if it's, <laughs> if, and, <laughs> I'm just thinking because we, we've really riffed on this and are expressing a lot of our own opinions. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people disagree with too. And, and I, I like having those kind of conversations. Yeah. Um, and I'm just trying to think how do we get here from, I don't know. <laughs> it's a conversation well, uh, we're having. Because uh, uh, the other component I wanted to talk about was, um, like I was saying, if it wasn't Jeff Bezos and Amazon and and Bill Gates and Microsoft and all that, someone else would be in that role. And that's kind of where the other part of your question is with more stringent environmental regulation and laws, the government could be in that role too. Yeah. And then you're counting that the government is the the one that has – um, the, the, the environmental power. best interest too, which isn't always the case. And we saw that uh, yesterday with yeah. with people in the private sector disagreeing with the government on policy on certain things yeah. for for restoration. So yeah. and, then you're um, dealing with that. So. so a lot of the balance is comes with innovation from the private sector, balanced with regulation from from. Uh, a, a well-meaning government. Yeah. Um, that's where you get the most progress. When you had talk about, and we talked about this at our our uh, managers meeting this morning, but you talk about New Jersey having a, an electric vehicle goal of all electric vehicles in across New Jersey by 2035, and um, and. Nationally, there's all these goals by like 2030, 2035, 2040. We want to have these environmental metrics in place, yeah. and um, Without that, I don't think we get there. Having that regulation prompts private industry to really shoot for it. And you, you get a lot of these startups who say, hey, I'm just throwing Google out there, but Google has this or Amazon has this. They're doing it this way, and they aren't looking into uh, – they're passively looking into the better way to do it that they need to fulfill by 2035. I'm going to invent what they want. And then they're going to pay me for it. Yeah. And so now you have that new startup that really funnels in, and and it's not Amazon who's inventing it by themselves, but, but breeds, they need to do this, and they can't invest in that. But you have new business entering the it breeds innovation. Yeah. yeah. So, and I'm sure the big wigs at these mega corporations hate the regulatory side of things so much that they're buying them off um but and the regulatory folks don't understand why the business won't just do what they ask them to but it's that back and forth and that push and pull that really drives us forward and that's how we'll we'll meet these environmental goals it's not by over regulation or and and 
just completely sacking private industry or private industry trying to do it on their own. You need to have that push and pull to get where we need to go. And we hope to have a future episode with a guest that we have already talked to that, that exactly exhibits that. Yes. Of of both the regulatory and the private sector coming together to come to a solution. At least that's my opinion. I'm like I said, I'm sure other people have different opinions on it. Um, I don't think I really stated yeah. any opinion. I just yeah, I put I really yeah. said a lot of opinions there. Probably too many. Yeah, I probably I don't think I, I like really to keep said myself anything. with a lot of this stuff. But I'll I'll, I'll end in it the this echo way. chamber yeah. right now. I'll, so. I'll end it this way. If anyone needs an intern in the industrial organizational <laughs> psychology field, I have the the young gentleman for you. Let me know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Reach out to me. Info at nativeplantshealthyplanet dot com. So there you go. All right. Cool. Um, well, thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Buzz. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. Uh, as always, huge thank you to RJ Comer, Comer for our Buzz uh, intro theme music. Make sure you stream or buy RJ's music wherever you consume your music. And thank you to Dave Bennett for our Native Plant Anthem. Let's let's get you to upload that. Someone in our Facebook group uh, showed some precedent where where if AI creates it and you put the work behind it, you can you can undoubtedly upload that to uh, Spotify and Apple Music. Let our let our listeners get their hands on that. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet. Also YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that. 215 215- Three four six six one eight nine. Ask a question or leave a comment. We'll do our best to play it on a future episode of the Buzz. And a big thank you to all the new and 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 old, I should say, new and old uh, members of the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Thank you for being a part of our community and keeping the conversation going, even when we hit stop record. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Just click the link at the top. Brings you to our Teespring store. Uh, we don't keep any of the profits from that. Um, the profits actually go into a, a little little PayPal account that we hold until it reaches like a, about 500 bucks. And then we say, hey, you know what? This is an organization that really impressed us. Um, we had a really cool conversation with, whether it was on the podcast or off. And uh, someone we think will, the money will go a long way with, um, where 500 bucks will make a, a big, big impact. So, um so, yeah, so you're not just getting a fashionable T-shirt that spreads a great native plant message. You're also, uh, in a roundabout way, giving back to a, a cause that can really use the help. Um, you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcast. Do us a favor. I always say Stitcher because it's still in there, but not Stitcher. You can't I'll, listen to it anymore. I'll remo- I removed it from the other one. <laughs> yeah. I didn't remove it from this but, one. Um, yeah, you can uh, listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts, wherever you're listening now. Just keep listening to us there. Uh, unless you want to up your chances of winning Camille Dungy's book. and Comment you, everywhere. You comment everywhere. So um, if you do with us that favor, uh, we're sweetening the pot by by offering the, the chance we, to win the book. But we, we did say we would accept Podbean comments yeah. oh, on Podbean yeah. as well. So don't forget that yep. also. Um, leave us a, a five-star review. Leave comments. uh uh, subscribe. Those things all go a really long way into helping us uh, achieve our mission to, of native plant authority in the world. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We we don't take ourselves that seriously, but um, we we like appreciate having uh, our message received by so many of you. So, uh, and if you think other people would be interested, in this, share it with a friend. Um, 
Fran, I my original secret was yes. as I was reading my article, I realized how many how many like uh, hundreds of thousands numbers there were, and I remembered how much I struggle with saying them properly. Oh. I always say like I always say like six hundred thousand and twenty thousand. <laughs> I always stumble <laughs> through. I did okay. I, I really took my time. But that was going to be my secret. Notice. So that's a bonus notice. secret. All right. My other secret, and I feel like I have shared this, so this is why I wanted it to, is we used to hunt on a property in West Virginia. Um, that was a guy from town moved down to West Virginia, from our town in Columbus, New Jersey, moved down to West Virginia and had this property down there. And we said, oh, you know what? We'll go hunt. So we'd go leave Thanksgiving night, All right, have for, dinner. I forgot about that. Yeah. We'd drive down there, and then we would go hunt for usually like a half a week and then come back to New Jersey and go back to school. And the relationship, we had a a bunch of people from our town do it. Um, The relationship between the guy who moved down there and, and my family didn't really sour, but it soured with some other people because uh, he, he invited, I guess he was approached by some TV producers. If they would let them shoot a TV show on their on his property and it was called mountain monsters and they were using some of like the blinds and tree stands that, um, that some of the other guys in our club put up and, uh, and I guess they caught them down there one time and they were really upset. And then they went to the owner of the property and said, Hey, you can't, we're paying you for these rights. You can't let other people using our stuff. And, uh, and he said, I, it's my property. I can let them do whatever I want (laughs) kind of thing and kick them off. Um, but yeah, there was a show. I forget what channel was on. But it was uh, called Mountain Monsters, oh, and it was I like know it. all the Bigfoot like adjacent stuff. Okay, like Mothman. It's a lot, oh, a lot okay. of like the southeastern stuff. Um, Mothman, the Wampus Beast. I think that's the one they shot on this, this particular property. property. Um, I'm trying to remember. There's like Grant, the Kentucky Grassman. <laughs> They're like these <laughs> crazy names. I got to look them up because there's so many like wild ones. Uh, mountain monsters. I know Mothman. Mothman. Moth let's man. see. Um, there was. Let's see. Uh, the Wolfman of Wolf County, Grassman of Perry, Perry County, the Devil Dog of Lomas, uh, Logan County, the Wampus Beast of Pleasance County, and that's where we were. It was Pleasance okay. County, West Virginia. Uh, Mothman of Mason County, the Lizard Demon of Wood County. Uh, then you had the the Kentucky Hellhound, the Grafton Monster, the Yahoo Werewolf. Fire dragon, sheep, sheep squatch. <laughs> you want to take your sheep squatch. You want to take your sasquatch <laughs> up to another level. Think of sheep. Squatch. Listen, that's our next podcast pitch: uh, the sheep squatch. You had uh, the shadow creature, wild Bill's bear beast, the death cat, the snally gaster, <laughs> uh, cave creatures, hogzilla, uh, the bloodless howl- howler, grassman's wow. revenge. <laughs> uh, then you had a bunch of bigfoot. They had the bigfoot edition, season three. And, uh, oh, it and, went and three season seasons. Four. Wow. Oh, four season seasons. four. It was, wow. Season four was another Bigfoots all over the place. Wow. Um, then you had season five with Secrets of the Dark Forest. Let's see if there's any other really good names. Um, yeah. Oh, season six. Season seven. Oh, there's like, this is still wow, going. still going. All right. See, uh, yeah, season, uh, season eight was 2022. Uh, last episode was March 13th. So... Apparently there's a feud on finding. Do. Oh, finding Maybe. Bigfoot, finding Bigfoot, finding Bigfoot. Um, producers had a, a rift with uh, with Mountain Monsters because they thought they were 
there's claim that they were just actors where the finding Bigfoot folks were a real deal. Oh, oh, that's serious. Maybe we can get them up here and have them find the, the nature boy of Columbus. Yeah. Make nature boy of Mansfield. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking we should do like a Bigfoot episode when we should invite oh. some big and talk about Bigfoot habitat. That was actually that's a T-shirt I've been meaning to make. Is okay. like I I create Bigfoot habitat or something uh, like that. Or, you know or what? Something, like, along, something right. Bigfoot habitat related. All right, so. I like that. Yeah. All right, I like yeah. that. You know what? If if they're gonna beat us in the the, the ratings, okay. then let's let's at least get some money from it to do some good for some of our our partners. Oh, but. it's on Max right now. It's oh, streaming. Oh, I have Max. Max. All right, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, it started on. It was on Destination America. And All then right. it actually moved to the travel channel. Oh, wow. All right. So, All right, cool. Well, All right, so we've actually recorded for an hour and 40 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, we really went off yeah. well, off the rails with yes, the whole uh, – The take it or leave start it. doing <laughs> political talk and <laughs> economic talk. And, yeah. All right, let's wrap it All up. All right. Yeah, well, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. Before I forget, I want to do a, a big thank you to Terry Doss, Matthew Holthouse, and Rob Wechter for, for all the work they did putting on this year conference and inviting us to – to do the live podcast. Thank you for that. Uh, coming up next week, let's see, who's our guest next week? Oh, it's it's the SEER Conference. It's yeah. a live podcast with uh, Rebecca uh, – why am I drawing? Swadek. Swadek. Rebecca Swadek. Thank you. So we'll see you again next time, and until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.